0: Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Lurie.
1: Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, and my co-host is Kate Lurie. Our guest today is Babatunde Akinboboye. On this episode, Babatunde will be telling us his trailblazing life story. And then in our next episode, he'll be back to answer our questions about the journey he's sharing today. Here's a bit more about our guest. Nigerian-American baritone, Babatunde Akin Boboye is known as the hip Hopra guy. He's recognized for combining his operatic training with his love of hip-hop and trap beats to create a new genre of music that he refers to as hip Hopra. As a professional opera singer, Babatunde has performed in many notable opera houses, including the Los Angeles Opera, Opera San Jose, Opera Santa Barbara, and more. As an advocate for performance of art song and operatic works written by African and African-American composers, Babatunde has headlined the Lagos Chamber of Commerce and Industry Awards in Lagos, Nigeria, performing a fusion of opera and traditional African music. He was also a featured performer at the National Association of Negro Musicians annual conference, as well as the African-American art song Alliance conference in 2018. Babatunde combined Largo El Factum by Rosini with Kendrick Lamar's Humble in a viral video that reached over 10 million views and was featured by Time.com, MSN.com, and more. But before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy nor a replacement for therapy. Please know that this episode has themes of physical and emotional abuse. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or an emotional support hotline like 800-273-TALK, which is 8255.
2: All righty. So, Babatunde, as one of my best friends, you and I talk every day. How many times do you think we've ended a conversation with everything is backwards?
3: Everything is backwards. (laughs) That's a catchphrase at this point. I
2: know. It's a theme in our friendship. As you know, United States and Africa have both been heavily shaped by white puritanical beliefs that include the idea that big song, big dance, big joy are uncivilized and shameful. All you have to do is walk into a church with a white congregation this Sunday, witness the stillness, and anyone can see what I mean. But the truth is quite the opposite, because so many things are backwards. Research related to somatic psychotherapy has shown that mental illness and emotional sickness is highly exacerbated when we lose our voice, are physically still, or dim our emotional expression. So those white puritanical social norms have actually been contributing to mental illness. And perhaps part of the reason Black people as a culture are so awe-inspiring in their resilience is due to being a culture that embraces movement and song. And so the purpose of this podcast is to break down the shame that influences like some organized religions have instilled while shining a light on the truth. And that's why having you on as one of our first guests is so important, because you, my friend, are a full tilt, rebel, breaking down social norms within the conservative white opera world and paving a new path that is more alive, joyful, and creative. And, you know, I have always told you that you are joy on feet. So before we get started with your story, is there anything you, that you'd like anyone to know first? Um, no, uh, I, no, I think, um, think I'm ready to just jump right into it. Okay, so Baba Tunde, please tell us your story.
3: All right, so I realize that this is probably something I could have, should have said before, but um, I want to preface this with the note that I'm the oldest of three siblings, or three kids, and I'm also the most sensitive, the most emotional, uh, probably needed the most coddling. Unfortunately, no one in my family knew that, including me. We all thought that because I'm the oldest, I'm the strongest. It's a very we're Nigerian. It's a very Nigerian way of thinking, uh, just because I'm the oldest time day, everything-esque. And so, well, my family, my dad, Nigerian man, um, but he had a really, really big energy, big presence, even for a Nigerian guy. If you're, you know, from the U.S. and you met a Nigerian person, you know, as an adult, you'll realize that they tend to be much more bigger energetically just more passionate can uh, more expressive uh, just a little bigger. My dad is expressive for a Nigerian guy uh, and so he had that energy he the way he moved and he was also really intimidating. <laughs> I remember he he's the, he had two older brothers and a younger brother but they all you know moved around him he was they were all very I don't want to say afraid but when he spoke they moved <laughs> and that was my dad now my mom my mom was right. What well, she grew, she grew up in boarding schools that were run by missionaries, by British missionaries. So she grew up very proper, uh, very uh, polite, very religious, and she was also really, really pretty. In her in her neighborhood, she was like the she was like the pretty lady. In her high school, she won the there was some pageant for the the the. Essentially goes to the prettiest girl in the school. And it's for seniors, but she got it as a junior and then got it again as a senior. And she was just kind of known as the pretty girl in town. Uh, and the fact that she was an identical twin just probably added on to that. So that was my mom, and th- that was my dad. Now they're born and raised Nigerian. They're in the U.S. at this point, kind of at the beginning of my story, um, because they're going to college, which I never really figured out why. Because I should probably tell you a little bit about what Nigeria is like back then, because um, Nigeria, I, I, I find that often Americans have a, a in a, uh, inaccurate idea of what Nigeria is like, uh, especially back in the eighties or nineties, but. It was a big city. Nigeria is like the Los Angeles, I mean, the Le- uh, Lagos was the city that uh, that we lived in, that we spent most of the time, and it was kind of the Los Angeles of Nigeria, both in popularity and population. It was just massive, big city, uh, skyscrapers, you know, paved streets, fast food on the side of the streets, you know, Chinese restaurants, uh, stadiums, airports, uh, people had Three-story houses, multiple car garages, swimming pools, jacuzzis—you know—it was a—it was a, a big—it was a city, and the economy was really strong, which was uh, which was what made it really weird for my parents to be uh, going to un, uh, university in the United States because the school, the education in Nigeria, especially back then, was much better. Was free. And when you graduated, the government gave you like a pile of money and a free car. That's amazing. To start mm-hmm. your life. Yeah, it, it, it was great. But <laughs> I, I found this out for my aunts and my uncles who also were like, I don't know why they left. But they were in college. And my mom got pregnant with me halfway through college and she dropped out. And my dad finished, uh, graduated, and went back to Nigeria to start a business. Now, my mom stayed here with me and my dad would, you know, come back and forth, would visit and then go back to Nigeria to work more in the business. A couple years later, it was my brother, me, and my mom living in America, which was great. And I remember it was, um, we lived here until I think right after first grade. And it was really, really nice because, you know, my mom was warm. She was like, really, really cuddly, especially for a Nigerian woman. Back then it wasn't really the culture for moms to say, you know, I love you to your face, but they were just loving. And we always we would bake constantly and she taught me how to measure yeah, it was just it was uh, it was really, really nice. So my dad's business in Nigeria was picking up and he, I would see him. So I knew who my dad was because he would come and visit regularly. He was, I was really, really excited when he was in town because he's my dad and it was so much fun. And he was another guy in the house, which was fun for me. And then uh, he would go back to Nigeria and I would cry and I'd miss him, you know, like any kid did. So when my dad's business picked up, he called my mom and said, bring the kids over. Like we're good. And we moved uh, to Nigeria. Now, my dad's okay, well, so my dad's business when he first moved back there and started, he had a showroom that where he sold parts for swimming pools and jacuzzis and did some repairs and sold some supplies. And that's what he did, but he, but he became very, very successful very quickly and the shot the business complex where his little showroom was in, he eventually bought the in, entire complex, tore it down and built a country club there. And it was one of the first kind of country clubs of that style in Nigeria at the time. So it was really, really, so he, he things were going really well for him. So now he was like the owner of a country club and this company that now is make, uh, building swimming pools and jacuzzis and selling parts. So things were going well. So we moved over there and it was my first time in Nigeria. And I think I was about six years old. And I remember the culture shock. The culture shock was, I, I think it was especially um, significant or effective on me. I felt it because Nigeria was a lot closer to America than I expected, just as far as like moving about, you know, the regular nine to five, Monday through Friday grind. But it was also really, really different. There were some cultural things that were, the amount of respect that you show for your senior. And I mean, literally anyone older than you, like if the person's a day older than you, they can tell you what to do and you listen. Um, If you take or give anything to someone with your left hand, you may expect it to you may expect to be backhanded because it's such an insult. Um, that's something that you that that's a hard lesson learned. Uh, how important it is to greet. There were just a lot of different cultural things that I didn't get, and what was annoying going around, well, difficult for me was that a lot of the people i would interact with or run into would kind of expect me to know the things that you would expect a six-year-old nigerian boy to know but growing up in america with just my mom it was just very very i was very americanized and so i felt like an american in nigeria which sucked because everyone expected me to be nigerian because i was nigerian and i just felt I, i felt out of place and i remember staying I remember feeling out of place the whole time I was there in Nigeria. So that, that was rough. But one thing that made it a little better for me, but it was also, it was a good and a bad thing, I guess you would say. It's the, Nigeria had, Nigeria got their uh, independence from the Brits like in the 60s. Nigeria was pretty thoroughly colonized for a long time. So there's a lot of, in the culture, that's just a lot of internalized white supremacy and there's a lot of there's a very very high value placed on anything white if it's british or even american that's even better so i had an american accent and i had like it was a strong obviously because i was born and raised there it's all i knew how to speak you know like little boys speaking the way they speak it was cute yeah but mine was an american accent which made it more fun and cute and People treated me. Uh, people treated me a little more leniently, and they were a little nicer to me, and more kind. So I would lean into that American accent, and it made my parents look very international, or whatever. And so, I, you know, they parade me around to speak with my American accent, and that was that was that. So it it helped me as far as like giving me something to a break, but it was also it's also probably the reason why I never learned my native tongue. Um, between that and, you know, the, the culture, my family probably valued the American accent more than the native tongue at that, at that point in my life, but That's the way things work my dad is finished building this country club it's this big fancy thing and he has this big expensive commercial put together and he has me do all the speaking lines for the commercial and this was my first little taste of stardom because it was a commercial for this new country club and i'm there in this this really cute suit and i'm speaking these big words in the thick american accent and it was it went the equivalent of what I guess a commercial going viral would have been in the early 90s in Nigeria but I was you know it was they showed the commercial constantly in like in newspapers there were all kinds of cartoon drawings of me and stuff like that I would go to the marketplace people would recognize me and scream it was like uh it was neat it it was kind of cool and so um that was my first taste of stardom and and I handled it well I think as far as like any any kid would any kid could. It just felt like something else that I did that was fun every once in a while. But for all intents and purposes, everything else was the same in my life. Probably because, you know, I was going to school and I was still trying to adjust in school, which was difficult because I'm, in my mind, I'm I'm away from home. In my mind, America is home. Even though everyone's telling me Nigeria is home, I'm in this new place. And now I'm having to go to school again. And I don't know if it was just me being upset about being in Nigeria and having to be in this strange place where everyone was angry at me for misstepping constantly, or if it was learning disabilities I had, which I don't know when they started, but I know I had them (laughs) because school's always been hard for me. And so, you know, I started getting in a little trouble, fights at school, climbing things I wasn't supposed to, you know, like walls and getting in trouble. But that was me, I guess, dealing with the adjustment. Uh, one of the things that actually helped was hip hop. Is When I fell in love with hip hop, that happened about the same time. My uncle came back from the United States, and he had Dr. Dre's first Chronic album, and he, the cassette, gave it to me, and I I listened to this thing incessantly. I was hooked, and the parental advisory sticker was still brand new then, so my mom didn't really know there was cursing on it, so I would listen to it secretly by myself and on headphones, and I would learn every single word to every single track. I was obsessed with it, and that was kind of like my little escape at that time. So my dad's business at this time, he has this country club, it's blowing up, and he starts the security company around the same time. And the security company he starts, he runs like a military, almost. Like when you get hired, you go off to this retreat, this camp, and there's this basic training for weeks, and uh, it was just really, really like high-end security, really expensive, and they had a, some really great security saves or pluses or wins with some government buildings and they blew up. The company became this security behemoth and all these government people, these celebrities were hiring the company. So my dad's moving in these circles became really, really influential. And I'm starting to like hang out with him more and getting to know him because outside of that, it's always been short visits of just playtime and then he's gone. And so I learned that my dad was a narcissist, essentially. I, I mean, I didn't think it in, those, in that word back then, but he lied constantly. And even as a kid, it was shocking because I'm a kid, I, you know, I lie, but I know where there's a limit. He didn't. He would just lie. And I get it that he, he could do that because if anyone ever checked him on it, he would just say that was, he was telling the truth. He would just gaslight them into oblivion. Um, And it didn't, like, and because he had this force of personality, force of will, not a lot of, in the explosive temper, people would just allow it to be that way. And he lives in this imaginary world where he can just create whatever truths he wants. It's it's bizarre. You know, to this day, he still tries to tell me, he still tries to convince me that he taught me our language. He taught me Yoruba when I was a kid and I somehow just forgot. Uh, And I had to Explain, like, dude, I, I'm certain you you taught me English. I have the evidence to prove it. You didn't teach me; your you taught me English. Uh, but yeah, that that was him, and um, I got to see that side of him and get to get to see that. And this was also around the same time that I think my parents' relationships started to fall apart, and this was the beginning of the end of their marriage. They started fighting more. My dad became really. He, he would say protective, really security conscious, but he came, became paranoid and wouldn't let, you know, no one, my mom would want to just go out and my, my dad would not let her go anywhere, especially not alone. And then it got to the point where things got so bad between them, they were fighting more and they had uh, had arguments before but real life, like fights. And my mom was like, essentially done and would want to leave and try and leave. And my dad would not let her leave the house and so she was essentially, just like, essentially a prisoner, just stuck in a house. And any attempt to leave was, so my mom became angry and my dad became angrier than he already was. And so as a Nigerian kid, it's not unusual for, especially back then, for for people to beat their kids when they are, you know, for discipline. So I was already getting, getting beatings by that time, but the beatings got... Much, much worse, and this was the time I got two of the worst beatings that I ever got in my life. How old were you? I was about ten or eleven during this time, and um, yeah, I, I this was the time that well, one was from my dad, and one was from my mom. The first one was from my dad, and that was probably the most painful because. It, because there was the actual beating, which it was the first time that uh, that he drew blood, and the first sight of the blood didn't seem to stop him. So there was that physical pain, and also the reasoning behind it was my mom essentially lied on me to my dad. In Nigeria, they don't a lot. It's a really competitive culture, and so. Often you'll hear the the phrase, if you know a Nigerian person, you may have heard or uh, seen the phrase, Niger will never carry last. We don't carry last. Like we'll never come in last place. Everything's about coming in first place. And so in school, we don't know what our grades are. We just know our ranking. And the goal was to be first. Mm. And so, you know, in America, you know, like a few kids will have A's, a little more have B's, a lot have C's. and so. Whoever the amount of trouble that kids are in is kind of spread around. In Nigeria, one kid is first, and he's not in trouble. Everyone else is in trouble to different degrees. So, and it matters. It's it's everything. The teacher. That's the only way the teachers like measure the progress. Is only way the students. Only the thing students care about and the parents care about. So, I wasn't doing great in school because I just I never was. I'd always had one difficulty or the other dyslexia adhd uh it, i don't know which i had when but my i wasn't doing great and my mom told my dad that i was second to last in class which i may have been like fourth or fifth but not second to last in like 30 kids and in that culture that that that's damn near a de- death sentence like you don't tell yeah and so and the way she like told him this like right there like at the like the last minute i had no time to like defend myself i would only had time to react to the shock because it was not just not true it was such a it was such a ridiculous lie and it was the kind of lie where i knew there was no way she could have made that as a made a mistake and she knew that i knew that there was no way that that was true but she didn't care and so it was the that betrayal because i knew that like you don't like this dude either like you know he's <laughs> like we we stay with you after he beats you like why would you against me and I, it was just, i just felt so betrayed and it, it was it was horrible and then and then i don't know how much later uh, but it was one day it was like uh my mom was sitting in a chair and she got up for a second and i pulled the back cushion away and she sat down and hit her head and that was the day where I got the other worst beating true blood and an extension cord and I just never never forgot those Those two are the beatings that I kept giving I cried that day probably cried a few years later and I think the last time I cried about them was like a couple months ago it, yeah. it, I just never forgot them on, on different levels it, it, it just felt like something that would come from someone who really hated me not like anyone I was related to, not to mention the parents. So that's when things were probably the worst in the family. And during that time, my mom got pregnant with my sister and she was very adamant that she wanted my sister to have an American passport just like her other two boys because we were born in America. And I think in retrospect, I think this was part of like my mom's plan to try and get away from my dad. But my dad was, he was like, okay, That makes sense because back then an American passport was worth its weight in gold (laughs) in the rest of the world. So the stipulation was that she would have to stay with his brother in New York. So I was excited because finally I get to you know I knew it was going to be a short trip uh, to New York for just the summer till my sister's born. But I got to finally fucking go back to America. (laughs) I was like, got to go back home, and it was like, and I got to go with mom and my brother. And my dad was staying the fuck there, and it was. Great. And we got we got to New York and I saw my uncle. I was finally back in America and I'm there with my mom and she's like, you know, like mother getting ready to have a kid. She's like really soft, really like and we just we sat down, we cuddled, watched popcorn, we watched Merrill's Place every night and it was just we just we were just there. And it was so so nice. But I did know it was gonna be temporary because I was already enrolled in this big fancy boarding school in Nigeria. And I would have to come back even before the summer was ending because that school started early. Some about the boarding, yeah, it just started earlier than a lot of other schools, especially in the United States. Shortly after my sister was born, I had to move back to Nigeria. And this was hard on me leading up to it because I was already upset because I knew, like, I'd have to leave my new sister and my brother. Uh, You know, I'd never been away from my brother or my mom before, but my mom especially because I was really a mama's boy and also i was really touchy like emotional i always wanted to be hugged and held and that was something my mom provided especially during this time you know i could sit and just be cuddled next to my mom get up and do something come back make a sandwich sit down next to, you know she was there and i could i could get that regularly which was wonderful because she was finally happy again uh being away from my my dad and you know being getting ready to have her daughter and yeah, so I left to go to Nigeria, and that, the entire flight back, I remember, I think um, I was about 11 or 12-ish about this time, and I was just, I just cried the whole flight back, which was a long flight back, but because I knew that there was nothing warm in Nigeria for me, you know, there was no mom, there was no one who was going to hold me, hug me, but, like, who really, like, cared about me there like I knew like my dad was there. he's just dad but he was not like I, nothing warm mm-hmm. so got to Nigeria dad put me in a boarding school and the, so well the boarding school I was supposed to go to started there and it the boarding school at this point you know not hear a lot of great boarding school stories and this is this is also not a great boarding school story mm-hmm. uh, it was probably one of the other worst times of my life might it i don't know there's stiff competition up there but this 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 was bad it was really bad for me because i just emotionally i thought you know i i approached the world like i was told to i was like strong and confident even though i needed a lot of emotional protection and then so being there alone in this environment where the the boarding school environment is, you know, I talked about that hierarchy of, like, just the seniority. Yes. Someone's, like, a day older than you, they are older than you, and you respect them, mm-hmm. and that goes into hyperdrive in a Nigerian boarding school. Anyone older than you gets to pretty much tell you what to do, and culturally, you you essentially do it. So, I got there the first day, and, you know, my dad showed, my dad got there with me, and everyone, the headmaster comes out, everyone's excited, and, you know, Mr. Akim Bogoli is here, you know, and everyone's yeah, you know, he he has his fancy cars and everyone's really polite. And a typical in a boarding school for you, to, if you're a girl to have a house mother, a guy to have a house father. So I remember my dad was like, well, he needs a house father who I was wondering who, and then this guy, this kid was walking by and I remember the headmaster just said you, I forgot his name, but it's like, you come over. And I remember thinking, I was like, this is the selection process for the house father, but whatever, it's just some guy who happened to be convenient when the conversation happened. You know, he came over, and his idea, the idea of a house father, he's like your older brother at school. He shows you the ropes, he's been around, he shows you how to get to class, he takes care of you if you need something, if you, like, if you're out of something because you didn't know you would need more because it's your first time in a boarding school, he has some extra. he's in charge of helping you out, help keep your things safe when, you know, older brother, protective, take care of you, that's the, that's the job. So got there here's your house father it's like cool show you your room took to a room and he's like well some of the things you have in your suitcase are contraband which we were only allowed to have certain snacks at the school and he said don't worry i'll keep an eye on for i'll hang on to you. no one really checks because uh, they do random contraband sweeps in the boarding school just like at any given hour of the day or night or in the middle of the night often uh where they just sweep through the rooms and check for a contraband so he was like they don't check my rooms i'll hang on to them so it's like oh, okay cool and he took like all of my favorite snacks. And so I'm going through boarding school and you know, a a little bit later I I try and go get my snacks from him. And he's like avoiding the conversation or avoiding me or just getting a little snippy when I bring it up. And then like a few hours later, I was like, wait, no, I need need to be a a man. And so, you know, I go there and I kind of essentially demand my snacks. And he's like, what snacks? And it's like the ones you said you were gonna, and I get like a little loud and he's in there, you know, in his room with all his boys or whatever. And they just beat the shit out of me for getting loud with him. And, Mm. you know, and they have my my snacks and they just, and they go, they follow me back to my my room when I I leave. And they take more of my stuff. And there was nothing I could do about it because I go try and tell the headmaster. And I found, I think this was another shocking, like almost a feeling of betrayal where at this point I was used to... Whenever I was in an awkward situation, culturally something I needed some help. If I if I leaned on my American accent a little more, people were more lenient. People were more helpful. They wanted to help me. And you know, it was it, it was this it, it was something I was used to. It became like one of my defense mechanisms, something like a card I pull out when I'm scared. And so at the boarding school, it had a very different effect. And in retrospect, I recognized that I was kind of like a, I sounded almost like I thought I was better than them. And especially when I would lean into the accent. And so, and that applied for the faculty and for the other students, my cl- like everyone else. And so I realized very quickly, like I had to assimilate to if I was going to survive. And I'm like, deliberately trying to like, suppress every ounce of an American accent and like, only speak in a Nigerian accent and learn the slang and like whatever I could to just stop the beatings and people taking my stuff and just the, it was a scary environment. There was, there was always some kid getting raped somewhere at at every day. Apparently never, no one knew who, like everyone knew something, but no one, we were just pretty much unchecked. There were like three adults in the entire boys boarding school and they expected the older boys to take care, to help. Police, everyone else, but it was a nightmare, and I there was nowhere for me to go. I was just by myself, and what really kind of did it for me was one day I I think I I I got a call at the office, or someone told me from the office, but. Apparently, my mom had found, had gotten away, had found a way to like sneak out of my uncle's house when he was at work, and had put my brother and my sister in a taxi. They all went to the airport, flew to California. She was there with her sisters, and she had gotten away from my dad, finally. She was, like, free. And so for me in the boarding school, I'm happy for her. I'm excited, like, yeah, but I also realized that, that, that I wasn't going to see her anymore. Like, that was it, because she, like, my dad is going to be especially careful to keep an eye on me and and sure enough like shortly after my mom left my dad sent someone to the school to come check that I was there and everything like I was okay and yeah
2: and his whole business was his whole security business was to make sure people didn't go missing
3: yeah he was like it was keeping because uh, at that point for different reasons like black market stuff or whatever or just some there was like people, kids would go missing. There were people who would get kidnapped. And so it was kind of a thing at that time. And so the security company was, you know, security companies were in high demand. And that, that's one of the things that he was known for. So my mom had moved, had gotten away, gotten to California. And I lost all hope. I was just, I was just done. At that point, there was nothing for me, you know, it was, and that was the first time I really wanted to just wanted it all to be over. I was like, okay, this is, I don't want this life. Like, I didn't ask for any of this. Can, do I have to keep playing? Do I have to finish it? And
2: Baba Tunde is about to talk about depression that led to a suicide attempt as a child. The untreated depression and suicide attempt most likely culminated because he was a highly sensitive child with undiagnosed learning disabilities that was being disciplined with harsh beatings and left with little to no emotional support in an abusive school environment. If you have a highly sensitive child, they need to know that you view their sensitivity as a gift. So often such children are made to feel ashamed of their sensitivity. In addition, they need extra calmness, communication, and affection coupled with gentle parental guidance. And if you suspect that your child has a learning disability, please have your child evaluated. A school psychologist, teacher, or pediatrician can usually steer you to the right specialist. Finally, in the US, beating a child is reportable. If you suspect that a child is being beaten, you can make a report to Child Protective Services anonymously. We will include links to articles on these topics in the show notes.
3: That was the first time I tried to tried to kill myself. And I don't remember a lot of the details. I remember it was a lot of my the, the three other guys in my room getting involved and stopping me and then I remember all my sharp objects being taken away from me, and it was unpleasant. It was really bad. Eventually, after that incident, my dad came to take me out of the school because someone told someone important, and they told someone else important. Word got to my dad, and my dad came, took me out of school, and put me in another boarding school. And I'm in there, and I'm just kind of going through the motions of life at this point because I kind of have to. And that's just who I am, and that's just what uh, what it is, until one day, I remember this, this was my one little ray of hope I had in the boarding school. There was one upperclassman that was obsessed with Tupac Shakur, who was still like kind of a new artist at that time, and I remember he would play. He had a radio that would play music really loud. And one of my one of my crying spots, because I have to have, for different parts of the day, I had separate places. I finally found and no one could find me. But one was like there was these bushes outside his window, so I would go sit there, but I could listen to Tupac or whatever, and he would play California Love on repeat. And it was like a little like breath of air. It's like a it was like one little like cove of air when everything else was like underwater everywhere else I went. If that makes any sense. So that was like keeping me, I feel like it was like keeping me going, which wasn't, you know, it's not the best, but I was alive. But then one day, I get called to the office because there's someone, I have a visitor. And I go into the office and this lady who says she's my auntie and she's so excited to see me and she, you know, I have no idea who this lady is. I've never seen this lady a day in my life, but I know better than If an older person is acting a certain way you play along i was just yeah i was like oh, i was happy to see you too and it turns out that she was sent from my mom i don't know how my mom found out i don't know how she got her to me i've never seen this one before i don't know how my mom found out which school i was in because my dad just kind of very quickly moved me from the school that she knew i was going to to another random school but this lady got in there with and she had this note that she was like having me read like in a way where no one else could see me read the note and there was a communication trying to like figure out how to make this happen and my mom essentially smuggled me out of Nigeria to California wow. under under my dad's nose so amazing yeah it was it, it it was kind of unreal because i, I mean I didn't have my passport or any of my papers because my dad had it. There was a part where I had to like, when I was leaving the boarding school, I was in a taxi and I had to lay down in the taxi and pretend I wasn't feeling well because if I sat up, guaranteed I was going to drive by some building where one of that was run by that was secured by corporate guards by my dad's like uh, security company and. The guy and they always have guys standing outside kind of like Buckingham Palace or something, and they would guaranteed recognize me because I don't think there's anyone who worked with my dad that hadn't. And if I was spotted in a taxi at that time, because my dad was well off, he had drivers. And so if I spotted in a taxi, he was going to get word of it and he could make it very difficult for me to leave the country very quickly. And so... Through my mom and this this lady on that my mom didn't had like no money and was borrowing one of her sister's credit cards, but orchestrated this whole thing, got me to another country staged a thing where I could get another passport through like a police report, embassies. I got all the way back to California so amazing yeah it was it it was amazing as a, as and now that I'm older and I know more about how the world works, still there was no internet there were no cell phones. I don't know how she did this, but yeah, she got she got her boy back. That's love. That was cool. <laughs> yeah. So I'm finally in America, and I expected to be a lot happier. I remember that, thinking that I was just suddenly going to be happy again. Like the happiness would come back. You know, wouldn't it wouldn't be all like dark and depressive. But I was still like kind of sad. It was taking me a while to get there. But I do remember that when I left Nigeria, I I told myself I was never going to go back. And I remember just when I first got to the U.S., just hating everything that reminded me of Nigeria because it was boarding school. It was my dad. It was the place where there's no mom, no warm, you know. Um, I was like, I didn't want to run into a Nigerian person. I don't even put Nigerian food in my sight. Like, I'm I'm done. Mm -hmm. And that was was me for years, which is, it's just rough watching, like, in retrospect, watching a kid grow up to sever so much of his identity.
2: Yeah, that's hard.
3: Yeah. I'm 13 years old. I'm in the U.S. and I'm starting eighth grade. And... I'm excited because I finally get to have friends and I'm in America. Like I'm safe. I can do this thing. And I, I think this is when I, this is when I learned to hide my depression behind like smiles, laughters and jokes and, and performing to, if I can keep everyone else happy and entertained around me, then every, then that's happiness. There's happiness. So I'm happy. Right. And so that was a thing that was definitely like hiding that. Cause I would still cry randomly, but I, I was, everyone knew me as really a happy and Yeah. I also really, really wanted to assimilate because, you know, I'm there. uh, Everyone knows my name is Baba Tunde, so they're calling me Bumblebee Tuna. Eighth grade Americans aren't really polite to to foreign kids, especially not not in the mid-90s. So once again, I was in the game of very, very quickly trying to assimilate. So bury my Nigerian accent as fast as I can. Learn the slang, learn the terms. How do boys talk about girls? This is what we're supposed to do. Okay, cool. That feels kind of counterproductive. I thought we like girls, but whatever. How are we supposed to, you know, how are, oh, and that was another thing. I, I learned that I was an other. I learned that I'm Black. You know, when you're like going through, up through, like I said, I was born here, but I got through sixth grade and it was, it was, you know, nothing I noticed. But as a teenager, I started to notice that, that I was treated less than or like an other and that further forced me to try and assimilate harder so i could be less other i did not want to be ostracized or anything similar to that anymore and because of the upbringing like i said my mom was essentially raised by white missionaries there was the kind of that ingrained teaching of like white is right it was never anything she said but just in preferences and ways she'd react to certain things or word choices i knew that when i got here there were like black people and white people and i wanted to assimilate with the white people and that was kind of the beginning of me actively putting myself in white spaces now i so i did that i got through got to high school, uh, which was in the new school district, which I was excited for because no one knew. I was like fresh off the boat Nigerian a a few months ago. And I got to have this new, like this new fresh start and and that was great. Uh, But it is also the place where I came or I was introduced to classical music. My sophomore year in high school, One of my friends essentially tricks me into signing up for a choir class he's like tells me to sign up for men's ensemble i'm like what is a men's ensemble he says don't worry about it it's an easy a john's in it gerald's in it jb's in it and all the other guy friends that i wanted to like me like you know i was like yeah yeah these like i signed up so i showed up panicked because i realized it was a singing class and i don't know how to sing i don't know anything about no one in my family is a musician by any stretch of the imagination not any more than any other regular nigerian person and so i freaked out but I I stayed in the class. I wasn't going to bail because all my guy friends were in it. And then I had the first day, the first exercise of like singing harmony. I remember the choir teacher, he said, um, he was like, okay, guys, we're going to do an exercise. You guys are the basses, you guys in the middle are the baritones, and you guys on this end are the tenors. Okay, so you guys go, la, you guys sing, la, wait, la, la, la. Okay, sing those three notes, same time, la. And it was my first time like watching the sausage get built as far as like a harmonic. (laughs) chord and it's I remember you know how like in movies they always depict uh depression as kind of like everything's closer to like black and white and it's a little the colors faded out and when I sung that chord it was like everything like like the color like everything like brightly f- flashed in color <laughs> and just stayed right for a minute it was like for a second like that instant it was like any like darkness of that cloud was just gone
2: that's amazing and
3: and I <laughs> I was like hooked from that <laughs> moment. I was it, that was it. It was like so clear to me that this was like my reason for existing. It was like that's amazing. It was it was and so it was like finally something I was like really happy excited about. Yeah. And because because school sucked like it always did for me. You know, I had trouble. I couldn't. I had ADHD, so I the work it takes to pass a class when you can't just study for an hour a day, you can't just sit and study is insane. I was, you know, uh, so school was a struggle. I didn't enjoy school and things at home were rough because my mom, you know, she's away from my dad, but in Nigeria, my mom was on the cover of magazines. Uh, She was winning pageants through her, like men would travel just to like see her and her sister not trying to court them they just want to see them (laughs) uh my mom was treated like a queen all like the whole time she was like even when my like there was things were bad with my dad when she was out there was such regard that my mom was held and then she fast forward to to this point in the story she is now a single black mother on welfare without a degree and can't go to school because she has three kids to raise alone in a foreign country where she's having to figure out how how she's having to figure out how the country works in this way, uh, or how thing, what options she has available to her. And I know like that, that life, we all know that when you're single black mother on welfare or three kids, that's hard, Mm -hmm. but the going from where she was to living that life. Brutal. Yeah. I couldn't recognize it back then, obviously because I'm dealing with my own shit, but I think it, 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 to put it mildly, it did a number on her.
0: Yeah.
3: So one of the things I was excited about getting back to the U.S. was getting mom back, the, getting the warm. The,
2: yeah, yeah. Take your time.
3: The cuddle, all of that, um. But she could not be that. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> you gotta feed three kids in America, like you know. Right. And and going around and then yeah yeah it was it was just hard watching her go around be I mean we know how black women are treated in a, in America it's just like the double minority factor like she was went from being treated the way she was in Nigeria to and but she that was not that, that was it anyway so so she was angry tired and her and i butt heads a lot and when it became clear that i was like really excited about this classical music thing in in a normal nigerian house where everything is just running great it is like if you're a, your kids are expected to grow up to be a doctor engineer businessman or or something famous Everything else is is a disappointment. Um I, I'm kind of saying this tongue in cheek, but it's also kinda true. So telling I think telling any immigrant parent that's come here and wants you to like be successful that, hey, I want to sing in choir for a living. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's also gonna be hard. Right. And so we so we butt heads even more uh on top of that. You know, I'm going through my stuff and 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 I think uh, it was there was also the added factor of culturally and once again uh, to Nigerian culture things I n- missed like biting in the ass like there was this expectation that I would I would pick up the slack I'd become the man of the house I you know I'm the firstborn once again I'm I'm expected to be the everythingist and I did not have it I didn't even know that I was that that was expected of me or but i I did not have the capacity to be anything for anyone else. I barely had enough for me at that time, and so I was letting her down in that way, and I was letting my siblings down and uh, and then then I wasn't you know I'm getting bad grades in school, so because of all that i'm one thing, you know, i'm also getting in I was just in trouble, not anything really bad like i I crashed the family car I did get. Temporarily expelled from high school for getting, I got caught having sex in the practice room. Yeah, uh, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you, could you, you don't know what my chest felt like when I was at home. The phone rang and I could almost see that the, the principal of my school was on the other line and he was going to tell my mom the thing I already knew he knew. And I sat there and was talking like in front of my mom while she got that call it was not fun especially for you know my mom is very puritanical like very clean like we don't we we never had the sex talk ever she she borrowed a few books from the library and handed it to me and i remember I had one question on masturbation and like the, the whole room got uncomfortable and i was like okay I, I, that was it i'm done and yeah that, so that was not fun and i say temporarily expelled because I was sent to like a community, uh, sorry, continuation high school for, because I was also had really bad grades, but somehow i made up the grades enough to get back into my high school just in time for graduation. So that, that worked out. So that was going on at that time. And for me, you know, my mom is having a hell of a time. She eventually got enough training to become a nursing assistant and then started working like hell. She was working from, I remember she worked from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., it's not six days a week it was seven days a week it was like she was rarely rarely off and so she was just exhausted when she got home it was just yelling and just like just verbal you know like i and i started you know i had puberty i'm starting to look and act more like my dad apparently everything i did reminded her of my dad and every time i fucked up it was like you're just like your dad if i you know if i lied about something it was it was um it was the worst and and if i The other thing that really was hard, it was, there was this constant threat that she, she would regularly threaten to send me back to Nigeria. Mm. Uh, And, and I was, it was like, I don't think she could know how scary that was for me at that time. And so, but it was like impending. (sighs) I had choir. A choir at high school, and that was the one like light in the world. And I a, a choir I made new friends, and I had a new new skill. And it was, I remember, I that's where I met Zaniah. I Zania was in the advanced women's choir, and later she became my girlfriend. And we got married later on, we're still together today. <laughs> and the yeah, that was that was that was the ray of light. The uh, sorry, yeah. That was the ray of light that I think kept me going because everything else in my life, you know, at home that I expected was going to be, you know, this corrective experience was worse, so much worse than I expected. Uh, School was bad except for like the one class I had, but my great, you know, and I worked at Kmart, so work sucked too. Because I think at that point I was just eager to please and at Kmart I would like say yes to anything and which eventually ended up me getting just used more than any other employee. And I could see it, but didn't care. But the music got me through. And I remember asking my choir director if I could, when um, when he said that I could do this for a living, that there were like professional choirs that some people make a living out of it, I was like, okay, I'm good, I'm, I'm gonna do this. So I transferred to Mount San Antonio College, uh, which is a community college here in Southern California, because they had, a, probably one of the best choir departments in the country at the time and my mom didn't like that it wasn't that it wasn't a university but i explained that hey you know two years here that transfer university all the credits transfer i save some money and i eventually like won her over the only downside is i ended up being there for more than two years because well not because but one day i was getting a voice lesson because i was in the uh advanced level, the top level choir at the school. So the school gave free voice lessons. And this voice teacher was, I think the guy that kind of like shifted me on the next, like gave me the next big turn in my life to set me down, set me down this path. One day just kind of closed the piano and says, actually, no, no, he can close the piano for this. He was like at the piano. And he says, you know, you should try singing opera and i was like absolutely not you're out of your mind i mean i didn't say it that way but i was like hell no i don't know anything about opera I, uh, opera is you know this big thing it's a culture it's a style of me it's an old old art form and no one in my family is like even a, a nigerian musician like i said like there's no i i'm so unfamiliar with this but he talks me into you know, he, he, ta- he keeps talking me into it. He teaches me some vocal techniques so I can actually sing like an opera singer. So, which was really cool because, you know, I'm there in the voice lesson and I'm like, la, la. And he's like, well, do this, lower your larynx, raise your pharynx. And I'm like, la, la. I was like, oh, I felt like having a superpower. So I was like, okay, there might be something to this. And one day during a voice lesson, this was when he like very dramatically closed the piano. And he says, you should pursue a career in opera. I don't tell that to everyone, but everyone that I've told to pursue that has decided to pursue it has been successful." So that essentially did it for me. I was like, all right, let's see what this opera thing is about. I won a local opera competition. I was uh, going to transfer uh, to a university to study vocal performance. I, I kind of like knew what was going to happen next, and then out of the blue, I say out of the blue because, it, well, it's not entirely out of the blue because my mom and I had been butting heads for, you know, months or, or years at this point. But one day she kicks me out of the house. I have, like, I have to leave the next day, and I don't know where I'm going. So I'm at work. Uh, I'm hiding. I, it's, it's, I feel like my life has been finding secret places where I could cry. Uh, <laughs> I, I found a place where I'm, like, uh, I was, like, crying in uh somewhere at my job and one of my managers found me, saw me crying was wondering what's going on because I don't, cry, you know, I'm the, I'm the life of the party kind of guy. Uh, and I explained that I was getting kicked out. I didn't really know, I didn't know where to go and stuff. And he was like, you know, I have an extra room, my, room at my place. You can stay here. And then another manager came by, uh, then, cause he thought I was in trouble and came to, but let me figure out what's going on. And he had an air mattress and storage that he showed up with. And so, next day I moved out into this place, and I remember telling myself that, like, I was just done with my parents, um, and that was, I essentially, I, I I, ended up not, like, just cutting off communication with my parents for a lot of years, uh, but I, I was alone now, and I was, like, kind of, like, free to do what I wanted to do, to, so like, live my life and try and like put this together on my own because I felt like everything that was wrong up to this point was my parent were was my parents fault were my parents fault (laughs) so yeah so I this at this point I transferred to California State University of Northridge because I was going to be an opera singer I'm a little nervous because you know it's opera so I don't want to just just assume I'm good enough. So I just I didn't apply for the vocal uh, vocal performance. I applied for uh, music breath studies. And after I did my singing audition, because everyone was required to the instructors there asked why I'm not applying for the opera department and I said well I don't know and I watched them all put their heads down grab a pen and scratch out breath studies and write in on my application vocal performance and I went home that night got a call from the opera director saying that they had cast the the opera but they would they would like me to do one role that they they can work me into the role of Bartolo in The Marriage of Figaro which was so exciting for me because all those words sounded Italian and I'd never <laughs> seen an opera before. I'd never done an opera before. I, I knew nothing about opera. I had to call that old voice teacher and say, hey, uh, and I just repeat the words they told me. And, I was, and he was like, okay, you're going to need to buy the score. So I bought this huge book that said Marriage of Figaro on the cover and it was full of music. It was three hours of Italian that I had to learn and memorize. And this was the most challenging thing I'd had to do, especially musically, up to this point in my life. But I was excited, so I threw myself into it. Which And it was going well. It was going great. And then I hit one snag. I Bartolo, uh, the character I was singing, has this one part of his aria. Opera does this weird, silly thing where they give the old, grumpy guy these really fast, Lines where he's singing a lot of words in a very short period of time. And it's supposed to, like, because, for instance, the part I had to sing in this part sounded like, and so on and so forth. Which apparently was the 1800s Italian version of, <laughs> or whatever, just a grumbly old man. Uh, and so, I had to learn all these words and I couldn't get it. And I heard a recording and it was even faster than I was having trouble getting it. So I'm working on it one day um, and I'm uh, I'm walking around the house, like trying to sing this stuff. And there was like hip hop music playing because I'm always still listening to hip hop. Uh, and I kind of like heard that, oh, this kind of like lines up with the beat. And so I'm going to the and kind of find the beat and in my head set it to a hip hop beat and I nailed it and I was able to memorize the full role. Showed up the work first day, knocked it out of the park, I became kind of like the big dog on campus uh, as far as like baritones go and it, 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 went, it went well and that little sprinkling hip hop into the opera kind of was my little... Career seeker for the rest of my career. I would use it for difficult melodies, difficult rhythms. I would, yeah, I would regularly be in performances, hearing the hip hop in the opera, just because I've been like immersed in op- hip hop for so long. Wondering how everyone else on stage is able to stand perfectly still because this is so lit, and it's like, but no one can hear it. It just sounds like opera. So. I had like so. I think at that point I was like hoping that one day someone would do like a hip hop and opera thing because it's it's there, but no one, no one did it. And a little bit into uh, my opera career, when you know things are going well, I'm traveling, and I started to notice, I started to realize how elitist and racist and a lot of things is uh, the opera industry was. It, it was. It was just, it was really bad because I remember I started to notice that, you know, I was, I was getting hired for shows and which was in these bigger companies, which was great, but I started to, what I noticed was the roles I would get hired for the, the orchestra, the score um, specifically uh, required that singer to be black. And so I'd be there, you know, I'd be flown out to that place, I'd do the performance and, you know, they, hey, you sound great, you're great. And usually in our field, that means like kind of the beginning of a relationship with that company, and I would never hear from them again, with few exceptions, when they need me to do another black role. And so I got, and you know, I got to a point where I just it became obvious. I would get the score in the mail from a company. Never heard of the show, don't know, and I would just flip through, flip through, flip through. Ah, there's the N word. You need me to sing. Got it. And that just kind of became the the norm for me, which was weird because I'm getting hired, but only you know, like if if the person didn't have to be black, they weren't gonna pick me because they don't. And then, you know, I'm learning how blackface is still a thing in opera to this day. Not so much in the U.S., but in even in some productions, you know, they'll do an Aida where the cast is all supposed to be from Egypt or Ethiopia. And they'll just kind of give everyone's makeup, make them look a little, a little darker than they actually are. And so that, that kind so of horrible. thing is just, yeah, it's, it's like the norm. So I realized in order to become really successful or to make a living in this industry, I was going to have to become something I, I just couldn't. Right. And, and so I I tried to like stick to my, you know, stick to my guns. And I realized that this, I, that I had kind of made, essentially made a mistake in deciding to pursue opera. I realized that it just felt like the last attempt at trying to cobble together like a happy life where everything like made sense and I was doing something and it just uh, I it wasn't happening and I was just kind of like at a loss and back into like the darker parts of my depression and at the same time I would still you know go through opera because I enjoyed it. But I was kind of like being in a relationship with uh, going back to your ex. It's like I'm back with you, but I don't really give a fuck anymore. So I'm showing up in <laughs> rehearsal. I'm not dressed for rehearsal. Or whatever I'm dressed like I just got done playing ball on the street. I'm pulling into the parking lot. My hip hop is like blaring out of the the car. I'm not turning it down, uh, which which simultaneously made me kind of popular with like younger opera singers because I was like this kind of like a rebel guy when I showed up because what you're gonna fucking fire me no you're not who's gonna sing that n-word in the score yeah i'll be here all day <laughs> thank you and it was it, yeah <laughs> it was i would be hired for a show and everyone else would have a cover like someone else in case they were sick that could step in for them except for me and wow. there would be and and yeah, this this was one of like a, a another clear example uh, that i had I was doing the show where that was the case. And one of the main characters never learned the, the his role, never learned the lines and the music. And there was someone to take his place, but they gave him so much grace and we trying to help him out and like, come oh, on, you, you can do this. And whereas there was one section of the act two duet that I kept starting on the wrong note. And it happened one day and the conductor lost it, started screaming and standing in like the, just, it was like, he was red and screaming at the top of his lungs, whereas the other guy with the main role never, in the final performance, there were pages of his lines like pasted around the set so he could see it when he was at that, right, uh, that place. And it was, no one ever gave him a stern talking to. And that was just what I could expect. Like I, there was no room for mistakes as a black opera singer. So yeah, I was, I was, just, I was just really done. But um, uh, the, yeah, the culture of opera, everything about it. and the the worst part about it was about opera's elitism especially is that it's a dying industry and i feel like there should be a little more humility in the way they operate and so you know i hate inviting a friend to an opera and the you know the the culture is like oh welcome to the opera Don't applaud yet. This is the wrong place. You're supposed to applaud in the right place or else you look like uncultured swine. And (laughs) those people are just going to go where they can just enjoy a performance the way they want to. And so, but opera still thinks it's the shit and the way they interact. It's, it's just, it's upsetting. I'm doing my own thing and I'm like still like enjoying my hip hop element uh, as well, you know, my hip hop life when I'm not in opera world. But often I would be, like, still looking and hoping for opportunities. I would see people do like mixes of hip hop and opera. And I would go, and it was either some opera person trying to do what they think is hip hop or some hip hop person who doesn't have like the opera training. And so it was always missing something. So one day I'm coming out of rehearsal, I still have. Uh, I have Largo uh, from the Figaro's aria from the Barbaro Seville. It's the one that goes, Figaro, 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 fig- That one. Um, so it's I'm just, singing see- that in the car, but uh, Kendrick Lamar's Humble is playing. And so I sing that over the beat and it like fits together. Really, I like the way it sounds. So I recorded it on my phone and I posted a video on Facebook for, for my friends to see. Not for my opera people, because... I posted on my private, like just for my friends and not, and some opera people, because I didn't want the judgment that comes from opera. And I woke up the next morning and this video had gone viral, viral. And I wasn't ready for that because at that point I was, uh, uh, you know, I'd post something and if I got 100 likes on a post, you couldn't tell me nothing. Don't even look at me. <laughs> like, you know, like I, I was the king of the world, but with this, it was, I was almost overwhelmed within the week. I was hearing from uh, the Ellen show, uh, time magazine interviewed me, uh, America's got talent. Like everyone I knew who I'd never heard from was reaching out to me. It was, it was it was crazy but what i also noticed that people were asking me to do more and i was like wow they actually like it so i did a, a couple other videos where i was mixing hip-hop and opera and people liked it they're like oh, i'd buy an album of this but what i really noticed were the people who were commenting were regular folks and not the stuffy opera crowd they were like a bunch of comments of like i don't even like opera but i like this stuff and i and i realized that like oh okay other people like it's not just me and i did a crowdfunding uh put to I did a crowdfunding to make a small ep i put the album out with thousands of people were streaming it and buying it and i realized that like it was scary at first but i was like wait this is an opportunity for me and so i I decided very quickly to commit myself to this. And and I stumbled into the, I like accidentally ended up in this world where there are thousands and thousands of other people that also enjoy this kind of, uh, enjoy this art. And this art feels like me because, you know, hip hop was my, my first love musically. And opera has been my musical training for most of my life and uh, most of my adult life and uh, career. My, yeah, my formal introduction was opera, informal hip hop. It's just, it's a part of me. So I'm making art for me that feels like me. But I realized in order to do that, I was going to have to figure out more of who I am um, to actually give that uh, in my art. And so I finally decided that, Maybe I should go see a therapist to deal with some of this <laughs> darkness and sadness, and not being able, and you know, entertaining my friends more than, like, I more than it makes sense uh, because I'm trying not to cry on the other side, and if I laugh too hard, I'll shake the tears free. And, yeah. So I uh, started getting therapy, and I kept performing this art, um, making this music, and I think the two were so very, very healing for me because it gave me permission, you know, there's a lot of uh, stuffy properness in classical training, Uh, but it gave me permission to do whatever I want and just be my full self. I can be as black as I wanted to be (laughs) with this classical art form and not worry about anyone's opinions. And people are seeing me be this and they're applauding my art. There's an elegance to African people. And I'll speak for Nigerian people because that's what I am. So that elegance normally is something I had to bury in, in American culture because once again I don't wanna I, I hate that feeling of like, oh, you think you're better than us? So I kinda bury it, but opera's kinda giving me that home to to bring my elegance to it and where it's excused, like, Oh, you just looks like an opera singer. I'm like, huh, hey, it's funny because this is African <laughs> it's given me a place to be all of me and which I haven't really felt before. I always been hiding and severing, uh, separating some part of me. So ha- having this uh, space has allowed me to really just allow me to be me and know that it's okay. And that I am, I am fine the way I'm supposed to be or I am the way I'm supposed to be and it is fine. And the healing that's happened as a result, I'm you know, I've, I've been reconnecting so much more to everything Nigerian that I've been holding away for so many years, I, I've reconnected with my parents and building a relationship with them as an adult and and, and navigating that. And, it, and and I'm enjoying it. I'm learning my native language. I've been studying Yoruba and and learning the language. And I'm learning so much more of my culture, filling in those gaps that I missed when you know when I was growing up to six years old. And. It's funny because it was just, you know, I was just making music, making art, but this has turned out to be like, I'm, I finally have made that happy place. I finally found, yeah, I finally made that, that like the happy place, like I'm happy.
2: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And, you know, and, and as, as I said, you know, you're. One of my very very best friends and i'll have to say it's like you've had so much pain in your life but you know we've kind of gone through the pandemic together it's like i've been in my house with my three cats with baba tunde in my back pocket in my phone and i talk to you all day okay. and you know it's like you've had so much sadness but in our relationship there's so much joy and you really were a major factor in, in the fact that the pandemic wasn't that hard for me because I had had ba- Babatunde to talk to all day, <laughs> you know? And, um, yeah, your your story is just so amazing. And I love how, you know, you've told me how you didn't feel American or Nigerian, or you kind of felt like you were in the in-between, and somehow yeah. this fusion of hip-hop and opera has given you that place where you no longer feel like you're in the in-between. You found your home.
3: Mm-hmm. exactly exactly like yeah yeah just a foot in in each world but never two feet in each one but this is a, a place where I can be be fully me and you know Kate you kind of you met me at a really good point in my life where I was learning to just be joyful and understand that there is the sadness and let that be but I don't need to mask it I can just live in the joy right and recognize the sadness and so you've
2: always felt very authentic to me I mean in in my knowing you
3: yeah. yeah yeah and you would probably smell the bullshit if it wasn't so.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the next episode where we can really ask you some questions about all of this ask you more about Nigerian culture like Nigerian food all of those things you know ask more about you know Your relationship with Zanaya, who you've been with since high school, you know, um, and married to her. Just what it's felt like to be an immigrant. What it's, you know, just there's so many questions to, to ask you. And I'm really looking forward to unpacking all of those things in the next episode of Open Deeply.
0: Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Larie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes and until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music By the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.